it's been a wonderful start to the program this morning. Our next speaker is Dr. Rodriguez, who is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Center for AIDS Research at Case Western Reserve. Uh, he's substituting for Dr. Letterman, and it's a pleasure to have him here to discuss HIV pathogenesis, activation, and inflammation. Thank you very much, Dr. Herr, and um, I would like to uh, thank the organizers for the opportunity to uh, talk to you today about uh, current concepts of HIV pathogenesis. Um, it is also my distinct pleasure to be uh, here speaking on behalf of my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Michael Letterman, who could not make it to the meeting because of uh, last-minute circumstances. Um, I thought that I would start um, by putting this uh, topic into context with a couple of cases that, that I have seen recently at our institution at the um, Special Immunology Unit in the case Western Reserve University. The first case is a gentleman, uh, 49 years old. Uh, he's a healthcare worker, um, and he was largely asymptomatic until about four weeks prior to initial presentation uh, when, he, uh, when he developed uh, flu-like syndrome. Um, about a week later, uh, his uh, hand and uh, feet started uh, swelling up, and that was followed by perpetual lesions. Um, he had some gastrointestinal complaints and hemorrhagia and occasional fever. Um, these lesions progressed uh, very quickly within a matter of hours um, to uh, areas that became cyanotic and quickly spread to multiple digits, and this is what these lesions look like, uh, involving not only the uh, fingers but also um, the earlobes and uh, other areas of the body. Um, his labs showed some uh, mild normocytic anemia, uh, some thrombocytopenia, an elevated set rate and CRP, and a positive anti-cardiolipin antibody. Uh, an extensive infectious workup uh, was largely negative, and a skin biopsy showed uh, leukocytoplastic vasculitis and microthrombi. Um, with uh, this rapid progression of these symptoms, I admitted him to the hospital, which was reluctant to do, uh, started him on steroids, uh, put him on anticoagulation and antibiotics for a subsequent, uh, subsequently documented uh, staph virus infection. And this is what the lesions looked like uh, the following day. Uh, so these lesions were progressing very, very quickly. Uh, and as you can see, now we have uh, severely uh, ischemic uh, lesions of both uh, the hands and the toes. The second case is a previously healthy man uh, who presented to an outside hospital with uh, pressure-like chest pain, nausea, vomiting, and syncope. Um, an electrocardiogram showed uh, an anterior um, SD elevation MI uh, for which he underwent uh, emerging catheterization and stent to the left anterior descending, uh, descending coronary artery. Uh, he did have a family history of coronary artery disease, but uh, he had normal LDL, uh, normal total cholesterol, normal uh, triglycerides, and he did have a history of mild tobacco use. Now, why am I presenting these two cases that seemingly have nothing to do with HIV? Um, I am because uh, these two cases have something in common. The first case, uh, the gentleman with these uh, uh, thrombotic lesions, had actually been diagnosed with HIV infection 10 years prior to initial presentation, but he had never been treated, had never been followed, and uh, uh, basically he was just hoping that it would uh, go away. And his CD4 count was 88. Uh, his viral load was over 750,000 copies per mil. And the second gentleman, again, the shocking thing was he was 26 years old at the time of presentation with this MI. Uh, and he was diagnosed with HIV infection at the time of that admission. He did not know that he was HIV positive. 
and his report count was 170, and his water load was 490,000. Um, these two cases um, illustrate, uh, I think, a, a notion that is becoming more and more apparent, and that is that more frequently we're seeing um, non-HIV-related complications as the initial or the subsequent manifestation of HIV infection, much more so than the presence of uh, classic opportunistic infections. <coughs> Not only that, but I think that these illustrate, um, these cases illustrate um, a condition that I have termed AIDS. I bet you didn't know that I coined this term. AIDS stands for Acquired Inflammatory <coughs> Excuse me, inflammatory disorder syndrome. And this is truly what HIV infection looks like today. Uh, it's very much a condition of permanent, consistent inflammation uh, that has a series of adverse consequences, and I, will, uh, and I hope to show you uh, some of those consequences today. So that leads me to my objectives for the presentation today, uh, and it's basically one objective, to review current concepts on the mechanisms and pathogenic consequences of uncontrolled inflammation and immune activation, uh, in HIV-related immune deficiency. Um, and this is really what I would like to concentrate on, how this process of ongoing inflammation leads to the immune deficiency uh, that is apparent uh, in, the, in the cases, even in the cases that I just showed you, both of which um, had very low CD4 counts. To do that, I'm going to first um, talk a little bit about the role of uh, bystander and microbial-driven immune activation in the natural history of progressive infection in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. And then I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to talk about the uh, a similar, but uh, if you will, uh, uh, the different uh, way of looking at it, which is what happens to persons who are receiving antiretroviral therapy and who fail to reconstitute their CD4 T-cell counts. Um, to introduce this topic, then, uh, let me first draw your attention to the fact that even though the introduction of combination antiretroviral therapy has dramatically altered the, mor the mortality of people with HIV infection, we are not yet at the point where HIV-infected persons have the same mortality as, as those in the general population control, represented here in the green line. And um, these uh, must give us some pause, because if we're able to control HIV uh, replication the way we can, and yet people continue to die, we have to try to understand better why this happens. And this is uh, shown in more uh, detail from DAD and many other epidemiological studies. As everybody knows, uh, DAD was a cohort study of 23,000 uh, participants in Europe, Australia, and the U.S. with about 78,000 years, patient years of follow-up. Um, in this cohort, there were approximately 1,250 deaths from 2000 to 2004, which uh, is, is, uh, is completely within the um, antiretroviral era. And what is uh, clear from these and other studies is that this rate of mortality is closely associated to the CD4 count. Yeah, if you look at global mortality, that is very clearly the case with uh, increasing uh, CD4 counts, the mortality relative to the general population approaches one. This is also true if you look at specifically HIV-related mortality, and that is not surprising. But what is a little surprising is that this is also true when you look at cancer-related mortality. This is also true when you look at cardiovascular disease. And this is also true when you look at liver disease. 
So both HIV-related and non-HIV-related causes of mortality are dramatically affected by the CD4 count. Um, again, to put it in, uh, the, to translate that into the um, heart era, it's important to look at what happens in a population of uh, people who are receiving uh, effective antiretroviral therapy. Uh, these are data from my institution, the Special Immunology Unit at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and these are um, the uh, CD4 counts that patients who have achieved a virologic suppression, complete virologic suppression for over five years, have at the end of that five-year period. And you can see, of course, that there is a broad range of CD4 counts, but you can see that there's about 25% of these individuals uh, who, even though they have been suppressed for over five years, still have not achieved a CD4 count that is considered in the normal range, uh, which for our lab is 350. Now, there is no question, I think there is no rational argument to be made that HIV is not uh, the cause of AIDS. However, when we try to explain why and how uh, CD4 T cells are lost in HIV infection, um, the old theory that this is driven by viral replication and by uh, viral-mediated cytotoxicity simply does not hold, hold water. And this is just one piece of uh, evidence to indicate that that is the case. Um, these are data uh, on HIV-infected persons who are not receiving antiretroviral therapy in the CINICS cohort, and from top to bottom, you have increasing categories of um, HIV uh, RNA in plasma. Uh, as you can see, as the uh, viral load increases from top to bottom, uh, you see that there is a shift in the uh, distribution of these bars that represent the rate of CD4 uh, T cell decline per year in these different groups. So it's very clear that with higher viral loads, you see a higher uh, degree of CD4 T cell loss. But it's also apparent that there is considerable overlap among these groups, suggesting that the level of viral replication is not enough to explain uh, how CD4 T cells are lost. Uh, so uh, it is clearly not sufficient um, to have the information about viral load to understand how CD4 T cells are lost. And if not, then we need to know a little bit about what other factors are involved. Uh, and also, it's important to try to get an understanding for how these factors can help us treat uh, the more common scenario today, which is the patient who has a persistently low bar, uh, CD4 count, uh, even in the face of uh, fully suppressive antiretroviral therapy. To talk about this, uh, this issue, I am going to um, stop here for a moment to talk about um, normal T cell development, because this is going to help me uh, show some of the data that I'm going to uh, uh, share with you in a moment. Um, under normal conditions, uh, precursors from the bone marrow migrate to the uh, thymus, where uh, some of these uh, precursors are selected to continue on development. Uh, some precursors um, that do not seem to have a sufficient affinity for HLA complexes are deleted because they are incapable, truly, of responding to protein uh, in the way they are supposed to. Some of those precursors will be deleted because they have exaggerated affinity for self-antigen. The remaining precursors will eventually migrate to the lymphoid tissues and will become the pool of naive T cells that are predominantly maintained by homeostatic proliferation. Once these naive T cells encounter uh, their cognate antigen, they eventually differentiate into central memory uh, cells and effector cells. The role of the central memory T cell is to serve as a stable repository of this uh, antigenic information. 
the role of the effector T cell is to go out in the tissues, to go out in the periphery, and basically do the job of cleaning up any whatever infection or whatever insult uh, there is that this uh, initial uh, pool of cells responded to. Once the antigen goes away, these effector T cells are supposed to fall off, are supposed to be deleted. And once there is re-exposure to the antigen, these uh, uh, effector cells are supposed to, uh, to come back much more quickly. Several steps in this process um, are damaged, and dramatically so, in HIV infection. And I will show you some data uh, indicating why that, that is so. Among other things, memory T cells, both effector and central memory, are targeted by HIV. Uh, so a number of these cells are lost directly as a consequence of HIV. Not only is that the case, uh, but naive T cells um, have not only um, significant decreases in numbers in progressive HIV infection, but they are also incapable of uh, functional proliferation, as I will show uh, uh, also in a moment. Um, one uh, important point uh, to, that I would like to make now, uh, switching gears to, uh, to animal models, is how all this process of deletion of these uh, of, of naive memory and um, effector memory and central memory cells occurs in HIV infection. Uh, and we have a very important clue about uh, this from animal models. These are two animal models that illustrate exactly the effects of immune activation on HIV pathogenesis. On the left uh, is the Asian rhesus macaque, uh, which when infected with SIV, the, um, uh, the non-human primate equivalent of HIV, develops basically a syndrome that is indistinguishable from human AIDS. They have very high level viremia, they rapidly have uh, depletion of circulating CD4 T cells. They have uh, uh, opportunistic complications and rapidly die from essentially AIDS. On the other hand, that very same virus, if you take that very same virus and you put it in an African Surimanga beast, so this is an animal that has been living with SIV uh, for centuries, probably for millennia. Um, that is the natural host of this virus. What happens is this animal develops high-level viremia that is indistinguishable from what you see in the uh, rhesus macaque. Uh, but this animal does not develop uh, CD4 depletion, or at least not commonly, and this animal does not develop opportunistic infections. As a matter of fact, this animal remains uh, alive and healthy for indefinite periods of time. The crucial difference between, between these two animals is the rhesus has high-level immune activation, whereas the Surimangabi does not and I will show you some data to, um, uh, to illustrate how this happens and how these differences um, uh, impact the, the loss of CD4 T cells. To do that, uh, let me first start asking the question, well, why do we think about immune activation uh, in a negative way in HIV infection? After all, immune activation is exactly what you want to do when you encounter an antigen, when you encounter a potential foreign body. You want your immune system to respond to it, to become activated, and to eliminate the threat. Well, the situation is, so you would think that this is an, an adaptive response, but in reality, this is not an adaptive response in HIV. And this is shown here uh, in work uh, done by uh, Scott Sieg and others in our group. Uh, on the left, you see that cells that have initiated entry into the cell cycle, 
as indicated by the ability to dilute the BRDU dye, these cells express caspase 3 an indicator of early apoptosis. Not only is that the case, but when you look at this over time in culture, you see that these cells that are proliferating, that are supposed to be living, that are supposed to be producing new cells, what happens to them uh, in culture after uh, three days is that the vast majority of the CD4 positive T cells who are in cell cycle eventually will die uh, by day three. The difference is not so dramatic for CD8 T cells, although there is also a tendency for this to happen, but predominantly and profoundly CD4 T cells will die once they enter a cell cycle in the setting of HIV infection. So this is truly not a process of immune activation that is adaptive and responsive to, uh, the, to the presence of HIV, but rather is a process that contributes to the rapid depletion of CD4 positive T cells. So what have we said so far? Um, we have said that progressive HIV uh, and SIV infection is characterized by enhanced immune activation. Um, and there are multiple biological consequences to this. Uh, there is abnormal sequestration of cells in the secondary lymphoid tissues, and I didn't show you that in the cartoon, but this is one of the most striking phenomena that happens in the presence of HIV infection, that those effector T cells that are supposed to go out and go patrol uh, the periphery end up being stuck in the, in the uh, secondary lymphoid tissues, and therefore not only do they contribute to this ongoing state of immune uh, activation and inflammation within the lymph node, this is the reason that in an untreated HIV-infected uh, person, they have this massive lymphadenopathy. And not only is that the case, but also you also, uh, this also brings the consequence that you don't have a functional effector T cell uh, doing its job uh, in the periphery, resulting in significant immune impairment. Um, we also uh, mentioned that uh, some of the clinical consequences of this phenomena may be ongoing morbidity and mortality and subclinical immune deficiency, and I will talk about that uh, a little bit more uh, later. So this being the case, now let's ask the question, what is it that is driving this uncontrolled immune activation in HIV infection? Frankly, HIV itself is one of them. HIV itself stimulates uh, uh, toll-like re toll receptors, as, as do other viruses, such as CMV. So both HIV and co-infected viruses, uh, without a doubt, are part of the drivers of this uh, immune activation. But as I said before, it is not sufficient. Um, so what other drivers may be responsible for this? Data uh, that have been um, generated in the past uh, five years or so suggest a very, very intriguing possibility. And that is that the presence of uh, microbial products in the circulation may be one of those additional drivers that lead to continued immune activation. These are data generated by Jason Branchley and Danny Duick uh, and the, at the NIH in collaboration with our group and with others that show that when you measure um, plasma, uh, plasma levels of uh, lipopolysaccharide, a product of the uh, wall of bacteria, of um, gram-negative bacteria, you see that when you go from uninfected uh, individuals to persons with acute infection, to persons with chronic HIV infection, to persons with advanced AIDS, you see increasing levels of plasma, plasma lipopolysaccharide. And uh, we even have a better understanding now for why this happens. We understand now that initial HIV infection leads to a dramatic disruption of the epithelial barrier function of the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we now understand that the gastrointestinal tract 
is the fundamental site of initial replication of HIV during acute infection, um, where well over 90% of uh, the memory cells in the uh, gut-associated uh, lymphoid tissue is wiped out within a matter of weeks after initial HIV infection. So this phenomenon uh, seems to have uh, a potentially uh, significant consequences in terms of uh, immune activation, as I will show you next. These are data from uh, Jason Branchley on the left and uh, data from uh, Wei Jiang in our group on the right that show that when you compare, when you um, analyze uh, how the levels of, uh, in, of plasma lipopolysaccharide on the left and um, bacterial 16S DNAs on the right, you see that there is a direct correlation between those microbial products in the plasma and the level of activation of CD4 and CD8 T cells. Not only is that the case, but more importantly, same thing when you compare this with the level, with the degree of CD4 reconstitution after heart, you see that there is an inverse relationship between the magnitude of exposure to microbial products and the degree of CD4 reconstitution, even in persons who are receiving perfectly effective, totally suppressive antiretroviral therapy, suggesting that exposure to these microbial products not only contributes to depletion of CD4 T cells in the natural setting, but also serve as a permanent uh, break, if you will, to the ability to reconstitute the immune system after the introduction of effective antiretroviral therapy. Um, and to further uh, highlight the fact that these, uh, that these microbial products play a pathogenic role in HIV infection, we go back to the animal models, and you see that in the rhesus macaque, in the pathogenic model represented on the left, um, when you go from before infection to after infection, you see a dramatic increase in levels, in plasma levels of LPS. Whereas in the non-pathogenic model, exactly the same thing, you take this animal and you infect it in exactly the same way that you did the rhesus macaque, you see that after infection there is absolutely no change in the plasma levels of LPS. Again, suggesting that this critical event of this damage to the, uh, to the epithelial barrier of the gastrointestinal tract is a crucial pathogenic event that occurs from the very earliest stages of HIV infection. Now, how does this happen? Uh, so far, we've, I hope I have convinced you that uh, this does happen, that this translocation of microbial products happens. Uh, how do we go from there to causing this ongoing immune activation? Well, there are several ways in which uh, uh, this happens, and what is interesting is that following this model to its conclusion gives, gives us an understanding for why it is certain populations of T cells that get depleted in HIV infection. What you have in the top um, are CD4 T cells and the bottom CD8 T cells, and each of those bars represents the uh, level of expression of the nuclear antigen KA67, which is a marker of um, uh, of cellular replication, or on the right, um, the level of expression of uh, CD69, which is an early marker of activation. And you can see that when you expose these cells to multiple bacterial products, to TLR ligands, um, the response is differential in the CD4 T cell uh, compared to the CD8 T cell component. In the CD4 T cell, what you see is this dramatic increase in proliferation in response to exposure to these uh, bacterial products. 
Um, there is a little bit of a response in the CD8 compartment also, but what is most dramatic in the CD8 compartment is expression of uh, CD69. Now, why does that matter? It matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, I have shown you before that in uh, HIV infection, uh, CD4 T cell uh, entry into the cell cycle is not followed by completion of that cell cycle, cell cycle but rather uh, there's, um, this is a dysfunctional process in which these cells are destined to die. So this provides a mechanism for why CD4 T cells are depleted preferentially. And as a matter of fact, I'm not showing that here, but this is predominantly in memory T cells, in memory CD4 positive T cells, exactly the cells that are targeted and depleted in HIV infection. Um, this process of activation is all of the uh, CD8 positive T cells is also important because as a matter of fact, expression of CD69, and I, I don't have this data to show you, um, is likely to make these cells less susceptible to the signals that make these cells come out of the lymph nodes. So this provides an explanation for why these pro-inflammatory cells get stuck in the lymph node instead of going out where they were supposed to be. So um, switching gears now, I'm going to talk a little bit about how do we take all this story even further to the development of non-HIV-related complications. Um, so in, and uh, for these, uh, data from uh, SMART study are useful to understand how this happens. Uh, for example, how does this contribute to the development of cardiovascular disease? Uh, in SMART, these markers were related to mor uh, mortality uh, in the study, interleukin-6, D-dimers, and CRP. Um, and we wanted to understand what exactly drives expression of these markers. As you can see here, there are several things that can drive uh, expression of IL-6, but LPS, again, is a dramatic, it causes dramatic upregulation of IL-6. Um, and not only that, but when you look at, again, exposure, uh, when you look at natural infection or natural HIV infection, either uh, in the presence or in the absence of antiretroviral therapy, you also see that there is an upregulation of tissue factor expression in monocytes. So this provides a linkage for how uh, this process of immune activation leads to the development of uh, cardiovascular disease, something that you will hear more about um, by uh, Dr. Post uh, later in the day. Um, and not only is this the case, not only is this procoagulant factor overexpressed in HIV infection, but you can replicate this increase in uh, expression of tissue factor uh, by exposing these cells to, diver to, to various, to various um, bacterial products such as LPS and flagellin, both of which dramatically upregulate tissue factor. So what, I would, what we have said up to this point uh, is that microbial products are one of the potential drivers of immune activation. Uh, we have seen that these, uh, that these uh, microbial products are elevated with progression of HIV disease, that they are capable of inducing multiple markers of activation, and not only that, but that they provide a pathway that allows us to explain the procoagulant state, state that is commonly seen in HIV infection. Um, my final uh, quick section uh, is going to deal with um, the phenomenon of incomplete immune reconstitution. Uh, to address this question, we uh, did an observational study in which we looked at uh, uh, immune failure in successfully treated HIV infection. And by that I mean uh, immune failure were considered to be 
uh, persons who have been on combination antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable viral load for at least two years and whose CD4 T cell count was less than 350 cells per microliter uh, in, in accordance to uh, what I showed you before. And immune success was defined as the same uh, profile, but with a CD4 uh, T cell count of over 500. Uh, we found that older age, this is not new, female sex and non-Caucasian race were all associated with immune failure, as was a lower nadir CD4 count. But we were more interested in understanding how this whole story of immune activation related to incomplete immune reconstitution. And these are the data. Um, all those subsets of, uh, of maturation subsets of T cells are diminished in uh, patients with immune failure. Naive T cells, central memory T cells, uh, and effector memory T cells. But more importantly, both CD4 and CD8 T cells are dramatically activated. Again, remember, these are people who are on fully suppressive antiretroviral therapy whose immune activation should be on the way down and close to normal, except that doesn't happen in people who have immune, immune uh, failure of immune reconstitution, who have persistently low CD4 T cells. So in these immune failures represented here by the uh, red dots, they have, there is both CD4 and CD8 activation persistently elevated compared with the other uh, with the, uh, immune successes or with uh, negative controls. Not only that, but uh, cycling, and again, remember, in HIV, cycling is a phenomenon that occurs uh, that leads to cell death. Cycling is dramatically elevated only in the CD4s, suggesting that this, again, is one of the mechanisms by which these cells are persistently lost. Uh, and finally, to tie it all up, we see that there is uh, increased expression of the same inflammatory markers and the same coagulation markers that I have referred to suggesting again that this process essentially replicates what happens in natural untreated HIV infection. So I'm going to go uh, straight to my last uh, couple of slides, um, which are the question of fine. So there is this process of um, incomplete immune reconstitution. What do we do about it? There are several things that could be done. Uh, perhaps the most important intervention that could and should be done is to treat patients early. Uh, it is very clear that uh, nadir CD4 count is perhaps the strongest predictor of uh, uh, immune failure, and this is uh, perhaps the easiest way to, do, to, to prevent this situation. Uh, once you're faced with this, reviewing the therapeutic regimen is, al is always wise. The nofovir and the dinosine have been associated with decreased uh, uh, immune reconstitution. Um, there is the possibility that the eyes might have a better impact. Uh, and multiple attempts to use uh, a specific agents such as CCR5 inhibitor uh, are, have failed, but uh, further efforts continue to be uh, made in that regard. Um, one could try to actually enhance uh, CD4 T cell numbers, and this has been tried with uh, uh, multiple cytokines, including IL-2 and IL-7. IL-2 uh, demonstrated, uh, without a doubt, that uh, uh, that this could be done, but uh, it was not associated with a clinical benefit, and therefore the role of that type of intervention is unknown. Uh, antiretroviral intensification has essentially been a failure, and I don't think that there is any uh, substantive data to suggest that that's uh, a potential uh, alternative. And several interventions are being tried um, to try to block uh, immune activation in order to interrupt this cascade of pathogenic events. Uh, and those data uh, remain to uh, be seen uh, still. So I'm going to stop there and uh, take some questions.
Thank you very much, Dr. Rodriguez. It's a very, very exciting talk and advances our understanding of what happens in addition to viral replication to put our patients in such risk. We'll have a few questions. Someone asks what happens in the uh, elite controller? What is the state of their activation? So uh, elite controllers uh, do have um, uh, do have a slightly abnormal immune activation. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, this, uh, as you will hear in much more detail later during the day, uh, elite controllers eventually do progress. And uh, as a matter of fact, one can predict the emergence of this loss of uh, uh, of immunologic control, if you will, by uh, following the levels of immune activation, uh, which again suggests that this is uh, that these processes are central in the uh, pathogenesis of HIV infection. Your slide indicated treatment earlier and earlier, and one of the people here wants to know: Is there any data showing that AR uh, effective therapy? during acute antiretroviral therapy uh, prevents GALT uh, destruction and activation via it, translocation? It, it's an extremely important question and uh, one that uh, has been tried to address uh, in humans uh, for some time. Uh, these studies are extremely challenging uh, to perform um, because catching acute infection is so difficult. Um, the reality is, in practical, in practical terms, this is not doable because uh, the depletion of the gold um, uh, CD4 T cells happens uh, within a matter of days, uh, and this is and is largely irreversible. Now, having said that, there are several things that happen with early treatment of HIV infection. For example, the level of fibrosis in the gold and in other peripheral lymphoid tissues is dramatically decreased with um, with earlier treatment of HIV infection. This is, uh, this is well known. Um, it is also clear that early treatment uh, leads to a decreased risk of uh, incomplete immune reconstitution. Uh, and it is also clear that early treatment uh, leads to uh, maintenance of a more intact uh, immune repertoire uh, in people who have been caught sufficiently early. So there are several benefits to it. Um, but having said that, uh, the damage to the gold is so, occurs so early that it is impossible to prevent it completely. Is there, have there been any attempts to block translocation uh, by treatment of the gut? Yes, there are several. Um, and uh, the problem is we don't have the ideal agent to do that. Um, I showed there in my last slide uh, one study that is uh, going to start looking at Sevelomer, uh, which is an agent that's been used for, for treatment of, uh, uh, I believe it's an asthma agent, but happens to block uh, LPS also. Uh, so that's one alternative. Um, another alternative that has been proposed is to uh, administer non-absorbable antibiotics to try to decrease the uh, microbial burden in the intestine. And this is an, uh, an approach that has shown to be effective in animal models. Although in those animal models, it seems to have just a transient effect. Uh, but it is going to start uh, to be started in uh, humans as well. 
does um, the level of an inflammatory response predict a risk for iris following um, institution? It's, it, it's unclear. Um, it, it's, um, I don't think that there is a robust data set yet. Um, but I should mention, l let me for a moment add one more thing to the, uh, to the previous question and then I'll, I'll address this one. Um, uh, one additional alternative that is being uh, tried and that uh, Gopal Yaravali at my institution is going to be presented at IAS is uh, using um, uh, antibodies against LPS to try to bind LPS in the circulation. And we have, these are uh, bovine derived antibodies and uh, we have shown that that uh, seems to have an effect on, um, on immune activation. Now, going back to um, uh, iris, to the issue of iris, it is unclear that the same markers that we use to define immune activation uh, predict the risk of development of iris. But uh, pathophysiologically, uh, it would be interesting to try to block the migration of inflammatory cells to areas where there is a pre-existing infection in the setting of antiretroviral therapy uh, in order to prevent the development of virus. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with a study that is now ongoing uh, in Mexico and South Africa led by our group called the Cariris Group um, that is looking at the question of whether administering a CCR5 inhibitor might prevent the migration of inflammatory cells to that area and might prevent uh, uh, iris. So stay tuned. We should have data soon. We're going to have to uh, cut it short. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Very interesting. <clears throat> Before we go to the next